<clears throat> the more we sing these songs now that Brother Hale is gone, the more the words mean, the greater the meaning is. You see in that chorus where he's doubly explaining what being born again means. Yes, born again, born from above you. And got to have a new nature. And you receive that because you're washed in the blood of the Savior of love. Now, this next line is interesting. You wonder about it. You think about it. You use your own mind and you reason and you talk with people and you say you wonder and you perish if you don't go the way that's mentioned above, born from above, mentioned, yes, born again. You must be born again. Think about it, work at it, do anything you want to. As long as you wonder, you'll perish. You've got to be born again. Great, great music. Then another thought came to me while we were singing. What are we singing about? We're singing about one person, aren't we? Christ. Do you ever sing about anybody else? Do we ever sing about George Washington or Lincoln or Alexander the Great or Mohammed or anybody else? This Gatsby has over 1,100 songs by so many, many different writers about Christ. Here's another hymnal, a red one. It's got hundreds and hundreds of songs about the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got three or four more over here, all different titles, books full of songs about the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any doubt in your mind that he's God, that he's the Lord? With so much evidence laying around, why are our pews empty and nobody's in here to hear about Christ? You know why? Because people don't care about their own souls. They don't care. They're untrained and they haven't been taught and they haven't been told and they don't know. And all they go by is that natural, normal human heart that they have, which the Bible describes as desperately wicked. All right. Let's see, we're in Second Peter. Let's turn over there to Second Peter, first chapter, fifth verse. This is the one that Miss Petey's been waiting for. She's been waiting for Brother Richard to get to virtue. I want to find out what virtue is. Well, maybe we'll find out today. Maybe we won't. We should. We're going to talk about it. Verse 5 goes like this. And besides this, give all diligence. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. So, we'll see what the Lord has given us on virtue. Now, remember that this is Peter's second letter. And I want you to know that he talked much about virtue in the first letter without mentioning the word. But we'll find out about that as our lesson goes on. Now, how often we read or we quote this verse, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I think we all should know that one. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us about faith being a gift. And it has nothing to do with works. It tells you that. All right. And then there's another scripture that we quote. 
And it's in Hebrews 11.6. And it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, that's the plus side or the free gift side. Now, to enforce the fact that no works are involved, no merit, no helping God or pitching in or doing your own fair share, we find scriptures such as Isaiah 64, 6. It says, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And there's another scripture, Romans 3, 23 and 24. It says, all have sinned. Come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So if any religion was pushing faith in works, with works being the most important part, they would jump on a verse like this and say, the Bible teaches that you've got to add to faith. That faith isn't quite enough. And then the parade just starts. They don't add godly graces such as listed here by the Apostle Peter, but on come the money makers, the additions to faith that become major doctrines in their church. Back in Peter's time, they wanted to add circumcision. Turn to Galatians 5 just for a moment. This didn't just happen yesterday. It's always been like this from the earliest church. Chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherein Christ hath made us free, and not being entangled again with the yoke of bondage. All these things are because of the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he's a debtor to the whole law. Now, not the mere fact of circumcision, but if you think that your circumcision is making you a Jew and being justified is what he's saying, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whatsoever, whosoever of you are justi justified by the law, if you are justified by the law, you're fallen from grace. In fact, you've never even been in there. Verse 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision avail anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. That's why he has to bring this thing up about circumcision. Look again down verse 11. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. They don't want to talk about circumcision. All right, that was one thing in the early church. And that was a big church splitter back there, too. And then, as now, some wanted to keep the law, which is in Galatians 3. Let's see what that says. Verse 1 in chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently sent forth, crucified among you. Look over at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things that which are written in the book of the law to do them. 
but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Now look, verse 13, here's your whole answer. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. You see, a lot of people might have said, Well, I don't understand how he could have been made a curse for us. Such and such, and they go on and on. Look at it. It was written in the Old Testament, If anybody hangs on a tree, then they're cursed. So, to make it perfectly clear to you that he became a curse, which we meant really spiritually but here it is physically he hung on a tree hung on a cross became a curse period all right now just showing showing you how things creep in early church to add to faith now turn to first timothy 4 1 through 3 first timothy 4 1 through 3 Timothy's after Thessalonians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then the first and second Thessalonians, then Timothy. Now you want 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3, interesting verses. Now, these particular verses that we're going to read are going to tell us how these other offbeat religions got their start. Here's how it goes. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. How many false religions got a good start in there? You know, if I was going to start a false religion, I sure wouldn't do it with something that's mentioned in the scriptures that the word of God is against. And yet we have a church that forbids their priests to marry. Look at that, verse 3. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. Don't eat meat on Friday. It's bad for you. Eat fish. Where does it ever tell you that in the scriptures? Nowhere. Paul's telling you they're going to do this someday, so look out for them. And here they come, and the, the whole world goes after that big old religion. Oh, yeah, descendants of the first Pope Peter. Hey, we're studying about Peter. We're studying about that so-called first Pope. He's the one giving us these instructions. Did Peter ever say, hey, priest, you're not supposed to get married? And don't eat meat on Friday. Did Peter ever say that? If you can find it, I'll give you $1,000. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. They're phonies. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. They'll do anything to get a proselyte or to get somebody into their church or to be a follower. Give them a kid for the first five years of their life and they generally have them for the rest of their life. That's how they train up children in their false doctrine. Look at verse 1 again. Now, let's read it carefully, seeing you know these other things I just said. Now, the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, speaketh expressly that in the latter times, and this is where we're living right now in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, I mean way depart, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. 
All right. First, it's a departing from faith by some. And today you have your choice. And the great giveaway as to know when this happens is a departing from God's word. God's word is called the word of faith in Romans 10.8 and in Romans 10.17 tells us that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if they're going to depart from the faith, the first thing they're going to do is depart from God's word. Now also notice who is giving us this list of spiritual graces. Back to our lesson now over here in Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Who is this giving us this list of spiritual graces? Starting with, add to your faith virtue. It's that big old rough tough fisherman who cursed out a little girl for asking him if he knew Jesus. Remember that? Up there in the judgment hall, Peter standing around a fire warming himself. They're getting Christ ready for the trial, the phony trial. And the little girl says, hey, aren't you one of him? Are you kidding? You blankly blank. I don't know anything about him. Scripture tells us about him. It's the same disciple that our Lord told, thee, told to get thee behind me, Satan, when Peter wanted to deny the Lord going to Calvary. That's what the Lord told Peter one day. Lord had been telling the disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be taken by the Gentiles. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified. Peter said, uh-uh. No, oh, no way. We won't let you do that, Lord. We ain't going to let you go to Jerusalem. The Lord says, get thee behind me, Satan. This is also the first so-called pope. But he never was in Rome never was in Rome one day of his life. And we can explain that to you later. Now, this Peter is talking about delicate spiritual graces like virtue. What is virtue? Some call virtue the rule or method of living well. Others say it's righteousness toward other men. Now let's take a verse of scripture and see if we can find the Bible meaning of virtue. Turn to Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8. Right around page 1735, somewhere in there, Joe. You're going to be a few pages off, but it's close in there. All right, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, and whatsoever things are pure, and whatsoever things are lovely, and whatsoever things are of a good report. If there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. All right, from this we understand that virtue is like the mother or source of all succeeding graces. Knowledge, temperance, they're all virtues. Like a mother may have five children, and they're all fair, yet they're all different. So spiritual graces come from the mother virtue. 
they all have same of, some of the same substance. Now, in another sense, it shows some special habit directing a man to lead a good life, soberly as to himself, righteously as to his neighbor, godly as to the Lord. Look, at, turn to Titus 2.12. You're going to see all those things mentioned. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. It's right after Timothy, Titus. Titus 2.12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Y'all got it? Titus 2.12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, it's a fight. It's not something so very, very simple just by reading. You know what it said up there? It says teaching us that denying. That means you've got to say no. You know, all these little kitties go around with a shirt on and say, just say no. You ought to wear one on your underwear so it's close to your heart. Just say no to what? Ungodliness and worldly lust. That we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. All right, now faith without virtue is similar to what James says about faith without works. Virtue must wait at the heels of faith. Never does virtue reward us with faith or reward us with heaven or reward us with God. That's not the place for virtue. The Roman church looks for wages in their good works, for merit to bind God to them. Our works result from being bound to God already. Our verses add to faith. You've already got it. The Roman church says do good works and obtain it. But if we be justified by faith only, why are we rewarded according to works? Well, there are two kinds of works. in works such as God works in us, moral works, our worship, our patience. These are virtues. And then there's outward works or acquired. These we develop from the first kind of works or the things that God draws out of us. Now, God does not call us to account for that which he gives us. You're not called to account for your faith. But we are called to account for the use and increase of that which should be made for his use. I want you to turn to Matthew 25. We're going to show you the whole story of how that works. Matthew 25 is a parable. Verses 14. And it's a quite a long parable, so we'll get the whole story. But you're going to see now the meaning of this story. It's how faith is used. 
For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. So there was five, two, and one. To every man according to his several ability and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made another five talents. He doubled his talents. He had faith. He used it. He went out and witnessed and he gained. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained another two. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. He didn't spend it foolishly. He didn't waste it. He just merely didn't use it. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought another five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained besides them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done. You know what that means? Works. He did something. He didn't say, Thou believest well. He says, Well done. Thou good and faithful servant, thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. And he also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee a ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Here comes the guy now that buries his talent, doesn't use it. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee, that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. Now that's a lie. That is a lie concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not a hard man, and he doesn't gather where somebody else has sowed. This shows you that faith was received by a wrong heart to start with. And I was afraid, and there's no reason for anyone to be afraid of Christ. And went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. Oh, I saved it for you. And his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. He's going to admit to it. That's what you say? Fine. Thou oughtest, therefore, to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received my own with usury. The very thing the Lord taught against. But this is this guy's mode of thinking. So if he's going to talk worldly things, the Lord's going to talk right back to him in this parable. Take, therefore, the talent from him, and give it to him which hath the ten. And unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he has. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Kind of strong, isn't it? Well, it's not saying that a Christian can lose his religion. That's not what the story's there for. That story there is to tell you what you should do with your faith. Get out and use it. Use it. We owe something back to the Lord. It's not going to benefit your salvation one bit. It benefits you. All right, let's go on. We're going to 
explain a few more things. Two things we want to observe. First, that there is no merit in our virtuous works. No merit whatsoever. Second, that there's a necessity of virtuous works in themselves. Now, it's silly to say because we should add to faith virtue that therefore faith alone cannot justify. Now, like the eye, the eye alone of all the parts of our body is the only part that sees. But the eye that is alone without the body does not see. We do not separate faith and works in the person justified, but in the act of justifying. You got it? We can separate faith and works only in the act of justifying, not in the person after they're saved. Then they go together. In a fire, you observe two things, light and heat, and they can't be divided in the fire. Put your arm in it one time. You see, there's light from the fire and there's heat from the fire. Yet at any time, you may consider light or at any time you may consider heat. They can be separated and observed separately. So we get to works and faith. Now, are Paul and James at odds with each other? The one saying we're justified by faith and the other by works? No, not at all. No, the one acquits before God and the other approves before man. The one we receive, justified by faith, the other we return, our works. Paul is like a doctor in his schools, or like a professor, teaching. James is like a pastor in the pulpit, preaching. The one establishing a real faith, the other warning about just a verbal faith, Paul tells us that faith justifies. James tells us what kind of faith justifies. Paul teaches justification. James teaches sanctification. Now, virtue as a servant follows faith, her owner. But when she comes to answer the justice of God, virtue runs and hides behind the door. With the Lord be merciful to me, the sinner. And so leaves the burden on faith's shoulder, which only answers the justice of God, and that by the blood of Jesus Christ. Virtue is always waiting upon faith, but in the mighty act of deliverance, she dares not come in, but lets faith alone with the whole business. Why? Because it's faith that goes to the throne of grace with confidence and obtains mercy through the mediation of her sweet Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's a necessity for virtuous actions. The law, think about it, though it has no power to condemn God's people, it does have the power to command us. The law sends us to Christ to be saved. And Christ sends us back to the law to learn obedience. 
Galatians 3.24 shows that the law points us to Christ. It says it was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And in John 5, verses 45 and 47, turn over there, John 5. Our Lord's talking about Moses. Do not think that I'll accuse you to the Father. There's one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? And Moses is the one that wrote down the commandments. The Lord gave him those commandments and gave him all the law. Now the Christian strives to keep the law to please Christ who kept it completely for him. His perfect righteousness is imputed to his people. There's only been one perfect righteousness, only one person that ever kept the law, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. When a sinner comes to Christ and the Lord delivers him, everything that our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished in his life is imputed to that sinner, a perfect righteousness, as if you lived perfectly every day of your life, as if you kept the law perfectly every day of your life, as if you please the Father every single moment of your life, that's imputed to you, it's imputed to me. Well, I know it's hard to understand that, hard to believe it, hard to feel it. You're never going to feel it in this life. How are you going to feel a righteousness with a heart like that? But that's what salvation is. It's our Lord looking upon the sinner through the righteousness of Christ. His perfect righteousness is imputed to his people. And faith which worketh by love. That's Galatians 5, 6. Now a man is a perfect Christian inwardly through faith before God who has no need of our works. Do you understand that? God has totally no need of any of our good works before or after we're saved. Especially before, no works enters in. After you're saved, are you going to benefit God by doing anything good? No. So why do we have it? We have to show our works outwardly before men, for our faith profits them nothing. The only way you're going to touch or do anything for anybody outside of Christ is to live decently in front of them and to do things decently for them so that they see Christ in you and they're going to see such a hazy, dim vision of Christ in any one of us because we're all so pathetically poor. But that's why there's a need for good works. God doesn't need them, but the people do so that they can see. Now, virtue is loving to do because we are loved by Christ. So it has a sweet reference to all the graces following. Now, to love, this is knowledge. Not to be seduced from it by allurements, 
is temperance. Not to be removed from it by calamity is patience. And to do this for God's cause is called godliness. To tell it to others is brotherly kindness. To include all men is charity. Knowledge seeks virtue. Temperance finds it. Patience suffers for it. Godliness possesses it. And charity communicates it. These are all so linked together that to pull one down, they all tumble. Now, when we were in 1 Peter, he approached the subject of virtue and works in different words, but it was still there. So let's turn back just a couple pages to 1 Peter, and we'll review that very quickly, where he's talking about our sanctification, or virtue in doing. 1 Peter 1.13, where he says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. That's interesting, huh? Come on, get your, get your mind all straightened up. Get it in line. Put a bridle on it. Gird it up. Tie it up. And then be sober. You've got to think seriously and hope to the end for the grace. You know that every person that the Lord saves is continually looking to the end when our Lord Jesus Christ comes back. That's going to be our glory. You have nothing to glory on on this earth except in Christ and what he has promised. Take another scripture, 115. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Hey, be careful what you say. Come on, guard your lips. Your lips show forth what's in your mind. You should be holy in all manner of conversation. We fail all the time, don't we? Never know what we're going to say. Never know what kind of a mood we're going to be in. But we should be holy in all manner of conversation. Verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Is he talking about members of your family? Uh-uh. He's talking about members of God's church those whom God has redeemed by his blood, those that speak sheep talk. Love them fervently. You do anything for them because they're bought with the same precious blood that you are. Of course, he follows that by saying being born again, not a corruptible seed. That's what everybody has the common thing. That's why you should love your brother. They're born again. All right, let's find another scripture over there. Um, that was 122, okay, now 2, 2, 1 and 2. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, he's talking to saved people. He's talking to those that have been born again, but look what he's going to warn them about. There's, there's works, there's things you've got to guard against and effort that's got to be put forth in your daily living. So he says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Only out of God's word do we have any instruction. You lay God's word aside and you're going to die of malnutrition. 
As long as you read God's word, the Lord will keep you healthy. You'll be famished if you close it up and don't read it. That's only for God's people, though. The rest of the world go on and on and on, and they grow big bodies, and they work out, and they become famous. They make a lot of money. But when they die, they split hell wide open. It's a big surprise to them because God has blessed their lives so abundantly in the things of this world that they can't believe that they're a fit subject for hell. Now, what's God do for his people? Well, sometime in life he stops them and shows them that they're a fit subject for hell. Gives them a cry for mercy. Gives them an interest in eternity. Teaches them about Christ and teaches them about himself. They find out that they're the vilest and the lowest of sinners. They also find out that Christ is the most perfect and the most beautiful Savior anybody could have. They cry unto him because they know he's a mediator. He's the only one they can cry to. He's the perfect God-man. He's the only one that can give eternal life. So they cry to him. He delivers them. And from then on, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only important thing in that person's life. All right, let's find another scripture. 2.15. 2.15. We could, have, we could have went to 2.11 because that one kind of hits pretty hard too. This is God's people. And he tells them, abstain from fleshly lust. I thought they were cured of that. Yeah, they did too. But it's always there. It's always there unless you keep God's word open and keep yourself fed. You'll find out how worldly lust can get you, fleshly lust can get you. But look at verse 15. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may silence the ignorance of foolish men. You see, you should strive to do what God's word tells you to do. And this is a virtue. This is virtue. Does it help your salvation? Not a bit. It may help somebody else's salvation. If they see Christ in you, they may want to know or want to come to know him, possibly. When it says silence the ignorance of foolish men, they're not talking about people that are out of their skull or just got out of the nut house. <clears throat> foolish men think that preaching is foolish. So that's why God uses that word the same way, like 1 Corinthians 1.21, by the foolishness of preaching. And then up there in, in 1 Corinthians where it said, uh, the preaching of the gospel is to them that perish foolishness. So God always ties that in with the normal, natural human heart, being a foolish person, because the preaching of the gospel is to them foolishness. But God uses it to save souls. It's the power of God. All right, let's have one or more, one or two more scriptures. Uh, 2.20. Now we're going to find that suffering for Christ is a virtuous work. Does it help your salvation? No, not at all. But let's see what it says. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? For your faults, yeah. You get drunk, go to jail lose your license, lose your job, lose your home, lose everything. That's your fault. But you take it patiently and you suffer through it. You get anything out of it? Nothing. Uh-uh. He says, what glory is that? You've suffered because you made the mistake. 
But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. That's suffering for Christ. That's virtuous. That's acceptable with God. All right, let's look at another one. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Oh, I skipped one here, didn't I? How about chapter 3, period? Chapter 3 from 1 to 8, 1 through 7. It's for ladies. teaches them how to be virtuous. teaches them uh, a lot of things. And we've been through that lesson. We must have spent a month in there. It was great. But there's a little area there for ladies to learn how to be virtuous. It's the things that they wear and the things that they say and how they live and how they dwell with their husbands, all of that. There's virtue in doing that. Is it going to earn you salvation? Not a bit. Uh-uh. It's what you should do after you're saved. Now, 3, 8 through 11. Finally, be ye all one mind, having compassion one of another. Love his brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise. Blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that we should inherit a blessing. And then in verses three, uh, chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, here we go into suffering for Christ again. Uh, having a good conscience that whereas they speak of a, evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. You talk about the Lord. You talk about wanting to go to heaven. You talk about eternity. You talk about your soul. Uh, people are going to say, hey, you're off your rocker, man. You one of these uh, Jesus freaks, or you one of this or that or the other. They're going to make all kinds of names up to accuse you because you're interested in saving your soul. They've got a soul just as important as yours. I don't care who does the, the accusing or the railing or the cursing or the swearing or the not going to church. That individual has a soul just as important as yours. It should be important to them. But it isn't. And it's going to spend eternity suffering forever and ever because they will not listen. They will not heed God's word. It's a shame. And then there's other things in Peter. We've got to close. Our time is up. Uh, even chapter 5 tells pastors how to be virtuous. How are they supposed to do you're not supposed to fleece the flock and you're supposed to be a leader and you're, you've, uh, you shouldn't be proud and you should be humble. So many things. There's pastor's instructions. This book is a wonderful book of instructions. So that's what virtue is. Virtue is doing good because God is good to us.